Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Those of you who are at home online, we're glad you're joining us. And uh, we hope, we love that you're joining us online, but we also always hope to see you in person. So we hope you can get back soon. And uh, I see some Messiahs with us here. Yeah, you guys back? Awesome. We miss you guys when you're not here. So welcome home. We're glad you're here. Uh, so we're going to continue in our series in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 today. So you can turn there. We've been going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we've got this week, and then we've got next week, uh, where we're going to look at some warnings that Jesus gives us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. That's how he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, so we'll look at that. And then we're going to begin a series in First Thessalonians, just to kind of give you an idea where we talk about this major theme in First Thessalonians, which is these words from chapter 4, where we're instructed to keep awake as believers, where Jesus is saying, there's a way to live in light of the fact that I'm coming back, and I want you to live in that way. I want you to live in the expectation that I'm coming again for you, and there's a way to think and to live and to, uh, and to believe in light of that. He's coming again, yes? And so First Thessalonians reminds us of that. We'll look at that together. But can we play a little game to start out today? Is that Okay. All right, awesome. If you're at home, you can play along as well. But I want you to complete the phrase. Let's play a little complete the phrase for me, all right? So hopefully you know these. I tested them on my wife. I think they're good. So when I say the phrase, you can lead a horse to water, but can't make him drink. Good job. Well done. All right. Did, everyone, did anyone under 30 get that one? Yeah, all right, good. Fantastic. I love it. All right. An apple a day keeps? Awesome. You guys are like 100%. Well done. Did anyone ever get 100% on a test in school? Probably you didn't. All right. But some of you did. Some of you are smarter than I was. I didn't, but you did. All right. But better safe than? Yeah, for all our cautious people out there. That feels good, doesn't it? Better safe than sorry. How about this one? Don't judge a book. These are too easy for you all. Last one. A penny saved? was a penny earned. And all our accountants said, Amen. So these are simple phrases that convey broader truths, right? And here's the thing, as human beings made in the image of God, we have the ability to comprehend really complex ideas. You can understand complex philosophies. You can understand complex emotional dynamics and relational dynamics. You can understand complex mathematics. Some of you can, right? And this ability to understand complexity is part of our nature, right? It's part of how we're made by God. And yet... In spite of that fact, we all recognize the value of something that is inherently true and maybe even complex being stated in a simple and memorable way, right? So when I said those things, none of you had to like, none of you had a cheat sheet in your Bible that you pulled out and went, oh yeah, Apple Day keeps the doctor away. I, I see it right here. I had to write that down, but you knew it because it's memorable, right? It's a, it's a simple way to say, like, if you take care of your health, there will be less complications, uh, in your life as a result, right, that you'll have to engage. And, and each one of those things conveyed some idea that is true in a really simple and memorable way. Well, as we come to the text that we're going to look at today, we're going to look at one verse, just one verse today, chapter 7, verse 12, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is doing the exact same thing. He is giving us a very complex and important truth in a simple and memorable way. And he says it this way, do unto others what you want them to do, what? To you. 
Do unto others as you want them to do to you. Now, in saying this in verse 12 of chapter 7, Jesus is summarizing the entire Sermon on the Mount. Now, you maybe not, didn't recognize that, but he, that's exactly what he's doing. He's been preaching to us now through chapter 5 and chapter 6 and now into chapter 7. And all of it now, he stops. I call this a stop sign verse because what we're supposed to do when we get to it is we're supposed to stop and say, oh, it's meant to grab our attention say, hey, before you go forward, I need you to go backwards. I want to remind you before I move on of everything that I have told you up to this point. And here's how I'm going to do it. Do unto others as you would want them to do to you. So that's our, that's our text. We call it the golden rule, yes? And many of us probably have heard it since we were very, very young or some version of that. In fact, talk about this in just a few minutes. Every, almost every world religion has some version of this golden rule in their teaching. And Christianity is a bit unique, and that's what I'm going to get to in a little bit. But almost every world religion has some version of treat others the way you want to be treated, right? And so it's this profound truth that we are to do unto others as we would want them to do to us. Now, Here's what I'd like to do. I want to tell you why I call that a summary verse or a stop sign verse that is meant to make us to go back. And then I want us to simply ask a question. I may have lied a little bit when I said that we're going to just do one verse. We're going to unpack that one verse by reminding ourselves of everything we've looked at over the last 14 weeks. So did I cheat a little bit? Maybe just a little bit. It's all right. I'll remind us of that because that's what Jesus is inviting us to do. Stop and go back before we go forward. Now, why do I say that this is, this, why do I call this a summary of the entire sermon? And it's because of one phrase that you see there. Let's look at, at verse 12. Let me read the whole thing to you. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, two things here. That so at the beginning, the first word of that verse, so, or you could say, therefore, and whenever we see that, it's connecting us back to something. And Jesus isn't just saying, hey, in light of the fact that what I just said, which is you can come to God and ask for what you need. You ask for the things of the kingdom and your father knows how to give good gifts to his children who ask. That's what he's just said. But he's not saying just in light of that, now do unto others as you wish that they would do for you. He's actually, that so is so in light of everything I've just said for the last two chapters. In light of that, therefore, because of that, treat others the way that you would want them to treat you. In other words, I'm summarizing for you everything that I've just said in one phrase. If you want to know everything from chapter 5, verse 17, all the way now to chapter 7, verse 12, how might you summarize that? Here's how you do it. Do unto others as you would want them to do to you. Now, here's the other reason I know that that's true. Because of the last phrase, not just because of the so, the therefore, at the beginning of the verse, but also because of that phrase, this is the law and the prophets. The second we see that, you should go, I've heard that before, if you've been tracking along with us, right? So if you were just to sit down with your Bible and read the Sermon on the Mount all in one sitting, it's not that much, it's two or three chapters, sorry, And as you read it, you would have encountered in chapter 5, verse 17, this phrase. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill the law and the prophets, he says. And if you remember, when we looked at that phrase and that teaching several weeks ago, now 14 weeks ago, 
as we looked at that, what we understood is that Jesus was using that phrase, the law and the prophets, to mean the whole Old Testament. When he says, I came to fulfill it, not to abolish it, what he's saying is, I didn't come to do away with the moral standard of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. I came to keep that moral standard for you. And we learned that then in light of that, when he said, I came to fulfill the law, then he said, so because I've done this, now live a certain way. And he began to unpack the way that we were supposed to live. Now, before he said, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets, he gave us all these wonderful beatitudes. We said, if you're in me, here's the new person that you've become. You've become someone who mourns their sin. You've become someone who's poor in spirit. In other words, you're desperate for God. You have become someone who is meek, which means that you're gentle outwardly and humble inwardly. You have become a person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. This is who you have become. And then he says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill it. And we learned that what he was saying is the law has a ceremonial part, a judicial part, and a moral part. And he said, I've fulfilled the ceremonial law. You don't have to do all those washings and sacrifices anymore because I've become your once for all cleansing sacrifice. Amen? That's what Jesus has done. And you don't have to keep the judicial law because I've established, I had this judicial law for the nation of Israel, a way that they were to live in society together that represented me. But now in the new covenant, I have come and fulfilled that law by creating a new group of people called the church. And that church now lives according to the law of love not a set of rules and regulations. And then he said, I've fulfilled the moral law. And on the moral law, right, don't kill, don't steal, right? And it goes on and on. But the purpose of that moral law was not to say, keep this and live. It was to cause you and I to recognize we could never do this. We need someone to do it for us. And Jesus, through his death on the cross, through his life, fulfilling the moral law perfectly, never with one hint of sin, then going to the cross could pay the penalty not for his own sin, but for mine and for yours. And as a result, he fulfilled the law in keeping that. But it doesn't mean that we then dismiss the moral law as a right way to live. It means we no longer have to keep it as a way to be saved. And not looking for it as a way to be saved now, I now in the power of the Holy Spirit live according to that moral law, not to get salvation, but because I've received salvation by grace, through faith. Everybody with me so far? So this is what Jesus is pointing us back to in this stop sign verse in chapter seven, verse 12, when he says, this is the law and prophets. He's saying, remember what I said to you about I came to fulfill the law and the prophets? And then what I did was I started to show you the implications for your life. Because I have fulfilled the law and the prophets for you, how should you live? And he started to talk to us about our anger and about our lust and about our marriages and about our friendships and about judging one another. You're right? Did we hear all this? And what he's saying now is, what he's saying, this is how someone who believes in me lives. And now in chapter 7, verse 12, what he's saying is take a pause and go back. Before you go forward to the warnings I'm about to give you about false prophets and listening to them, and before you... Think for a moment about the warning of building your house on the rock and not the sand. These are the warnings we'll hear next week. Stop. Go back. Don't make it so that you've wasted the last 14 weeks, church. 
so that we would be what James calls like someone who, someone who hears the word of God and forgets it and doesn't live according to what they heard is like someone who looks in a mirror and walks away and forgets what they looked like. What's the point of looking in a mirror? It's to know what you look like, right? Are my clothes straight? Is my hair combed? I remember what I look like. I know what I look like because I looked in the mirror. That's the reason to do it. And in the same way that we look into the word of God, if we don't obey it, we're like people who looked in a mirror for no reason because we forgot what we looked like. We forgot to obey what God's word said. So Jesus is inviting us here then to stop and reflect. So we're going to take him up on his invitation today and we're going to go back through and look at the things that he set us and remind ourselves of them before we move forward. Now, just before I do that, let me, let me point you to one other place where Jesus uses this phrase, the law and the prophets, in this gospel. It's Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 40. And there he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And do you remember how Jesus responded? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, In other words, the first thing that you need to concern yourself with is love God with everything that you have. I mean, strive and strain to love him and to pour out affection towards him and to reorder, reorient your heart in such a way that you say, I don't want to love the things of the world. I want to love you. And as you do that, then the second greatest commandment is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus is saying, you want to know how to keep the law, this moral law that you're supposed to live according to, not for your salvation, but because you have received salvation. You want to know how to live according to it? Love God and love your neighbor. So in other words, what we see in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 here, if he says it's the fulfillment of the law to do unto others as you would want them to do to you, and he also says it's the fulfillment of the law to love God and love your neighbor, then we can understand that what Jesus is saying is that those two things are synonymous with one another. You want to know what God requires of you? Love other people so much that you do to them what you would want them to do to you. And the only hope and resource you have is that you would love God first and most. You love him. By the way, that's how you avoid turning people into idols. That's how you avoid seeking people's affirmation all the time because it's not always the most loving thing to do to get somebody's approval or what they want you to do to them. If you don't love God first, you can really get messed up trying to obey this commandment to love your neighbor because you can think that loving them looks like doing whatever they want you to do, right? But when we understand we love them because we love God and then I want to do unto them what I would want them to do to me. He's equating those two things. Are you with me so far? Yes? All right, awesome. So with that understanding that this is a summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount and that we are to love others by doing unto them what that we would want them to do to us, then let's look at that. How do we do that? And let's ask ourselves the question, am I doing that? Am I loving others by doing unto them what I would want them to do to me? And now our natural inclination, friends, is to answer that verse with a sort of sense of yes. Yes, I'm doing that. I, I, I sort of automatically put myself in the category of, yes, I think I'm doing pretty well with that. But let me encourage you that you can't do that until you get into the details, right? That's why Jesus is pointing us back and saying, go back and look at what I said about anger. Go back and look at what I said about lust. 
Go back and look at what I said about all of these things so that we would have to assess ourselves according to his word, not just with this general sense of, I think I'm doing pretty good at that. Does that make sense? So today let's do that. Let's let the word of God test us and sift us. Now, let me go back to what I said about all these world religions have some version of this golden rule. You know what is unique about Christianity is almost every one of those world religions and Christianity really first did this golden rule this way. Other religions have typically taught the golden rule this way. Don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you. And Jesus comes and he says, do to others what you want them to do to you. Do you see the difference between those two things? If the golden rule is don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you, I can say I've kept that as long as I don't hurt somebody. But Jesus frames it positively rather than negatively, and he calls for action on the part of his people. Don't just say, I'll make sure I don't hurt somebody. Go out of your way to do good to them. Strive and strain so that others receive good from you. Isn't that what you would want them to do for you? You do that for them. Don't just withhold bad, bring good. Isn't this amazing? Our teacher, our Lord is so wise. He's so good. He instructs us in this way. So there's a greater call than simply do no harm. A much higher call. So let's begin to look at it then together. Am I loving others by doing to them what I want them to do to me? The first thing Jesus talked to us about is our anger. And the question we must ask ourselves then today is, do I want other Christians to hold on to ungodly anger towards me? Is that how I would want them to think towards me, to hold on to it, to bear grudges? Or... Would I want them to behave differently? And so the question then comes to me, have I let ungodly anger stay or grow in my heart towards another Christian? Have I let ungodly anger, now there is such a thing as righteous anger. We talked about this 13 weeks ago, that there's a righteous anger, but it's an anger that is rooted in a love for the, for the glory of God and wherever that's defamed or diminished that there's a righteous anger that comes forth, but let's not so easily let ourselves off the hook and say, well, my anger's definitely the righteous kind. Let's really ask ourselves, have I harbored anger towards another follower of Jesus? And then he goes further, because do you remember what he said? It's not just if you, you've heard it said don't murder. I say to you, if you harbor anger in your heart, you've murdered them. And then he goes even further and he says, if you say to them, you fool. In other words, if you slander them. So here's the question. Have I spoken about another believer in a way that did not honor God? Have I spoken about another Christian in a way that did not honor God? Is that how I would want them to speak of me? Have I spoken of them in a way that I would not want them to speak of me? Do unto others as you would want them to do to you. Jesus, friends, has changed you. He has freed you from needing to protect yourself from others so that you don't have to lash out in anger or harbor it as a self-protection mechanism. He protects you. And he has made you a person whose words can give life rather than taking it. Do you know that? You know that's who he's made you? 
He's made you someone who is able to be so full of life-giving words that you never need to speak words that tear another believer down. Then after talking to us about our anger, Jesus talked to us about our lust, and he holds no bar. He goes right to the heart. And the question then that comes to us is, do I want, if I'm married, do I want my spouse to be faithful to me with only their body, or do I want them to be faithful to me with their eyes and their mind? Which do you want? Am I being faithful to my spouse with my eyes and with my mind, not just with my body? What, do, what thoughts do I allow and where do I allow my gaze to fall and be sustained? What thoughts do I allow to be turned over again in my mind rather than dismissing them and fleeing from them? Do I want merely faithfulness with my spouse's body or do I want faithfulness with their mind and their eyes and even more so their heart to be faithful in covenant with me? Am I doing this for them? How about for my unmarried brothers and sisters? Do I want others to look at me as their brother and sister in the Lord? Do I want them to relate to me as a brother and sister? Or do I want them to relate to me as an object for the gratification of their most base desires? Is that how I want other people to look at me? Is that what I want them to, the lens through which I want them to view me? Am I looking at them as my brother, my sister, my dear, purchased by the blood of Christ, brother or sister in the Lord? With that kind of purity and joy. Or do I look at them through eyes that say, you or someone upon whom my gaze can fall just so I can simply be satisfied in a set of desires that I find within myself. Which do I want and which do I give? Do unto others as you would want them to do to you. My friends, Jesus has changed you. He has filled you with the spirit of power and love and self-control, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Did you hear that? Not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Far too few of us understand and take up the weapon that we have in this promise of God that he has filled us with his spirit Part of what Jesus meant when he said, I've come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, is that I have fulfilled it by bringing about the, the ushering in of the new covenant era where my spirit now resides within you and you simply think that that spirit indwelling you frees you from the penalty of sin. No! The spirit of God inside you frees you not just from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. You are, Romans 6 says, not a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. You need to start believing in the power that is available to you in the Spirit of God. You are not a victim of your sin. The Scriptures, the New Covenant, knows nothing of that way of thinking for a follower of Jesus. Followers of Jesus understand that they are indwelt with immense power because the Spirit of God dwells in them. And he has overcome not just the penalty, but the power of sin. The trajectory of our lives is towards purity and righteousness for the glory of God in the power of the Spirit. We need to take up that power. We need to connect to it and walk in it. The Spirit of God is with you wherever you go. And as you dive 
into God's word every morning and you pray and you beg him and beseech him, fill me with your joy and your love and your peace and your purity, he will do it. There will be struggles. There will be failures. There will be setbacks. I don't mean to imply that the Christian life is one of just perfect trajectory towards righteousness. It's not. But stop acting like a victim to your sin that is not biblical. You are not. Not if you know Christ. Now, friends, if you are not in Christ and you don't possess the Spirit of God, then you absolutely are a slave to your sin. There is no way around it. You are a slave to unrighteousness and sin and death. But Jesus can set you free, my friend. And that's not just preacher boy up here saying that. That is a spiritual reality. It will come to pass if you give yourself to him. It's his promise. And he has risen from the dead to testify to it. Now listen, Jesus has changed you, follower of Christ. You are no longer a person who needs to find satisfaction in grotesque images. You are no longer a person who finds satisfaction in the gratification of your basest desires. You are no longer a person satisfied with fleeting looks at images that cannot give you life but bring death. That's not who you are. You are now a person who delights and glories in beauty and purity. Beauty wrapped up in purity. That's who you are. And praise God for it, because you know what is happening to every one of us? We are getting uglier. I was much prettier at 22. I'm 44 now. I'm not as pretty. And you know, enjoy it, okay? You're pretty now. No, not you. You're old like me. Love you, Tom. Here's the deal. I say that. If you're offended, you care too much about what you look like, all right? <laughs> Our bodies are decaying and dying because God is saying, you better know you're going to see me. And you better live in light of it. You better know I'm coming. Look, what is better? This is who you are. You're the person whose vision of beauty is sitting on your porch with your spouse, should the Lord choose to bring you a spouse, of 60 years and to say, you're more beautiful today to me than you ever were 60 years ago. You were beautiful then, you're more beautiful now. Because 60 years of covenant faithfulness makes someone astoundingly, stunningly beautiful. Because that's what beauty is. Beauty is not hair and makeup and no wrinkles. It's not what it is. And you're not the person anymore who thinks that's what beauty is. You're a person who knows what it really is. Praise God that as we get older, our spouses know what beauty is. Don't need to trade me in for a younger model. Some young dude with bigger muscles. Because we know what beauty is. That's who you are. Then Jesus talks to us about divorce. He went straight after our marriages, didn't he? 
And he makes us ask this question, do I want my spouse not only to be faithful, like we just talked about, but do I want them to fight for our marriage? Do I want them to hold fast to it so that they are with great intentionality pursuing as much closeness and intimacy and trust and love between us as there could possibly be? Is that what I want? Or am I satisfied with a shallow marriage where we never talk about things of real meaning, where we just kind of are ships passing in the night in the hallway, when we just kind of avoid arguing with each other? Which do I want? And what am I willing to do or what am I doing for them that I would want them to do for me? Do unto others as you wish they would do for you. That's what Jesus says when he talks to us about divorce and how we are to live with one another. Am I fighting for my marriage? How intentional and proactive are you being to love your spouse the way that they would wish to be loved? Now, let me clarify something there because this is really an important thing. When he says that, there's all kinds of ways that your husband or wife needs to be loved, right? Someone might be a words of affirmation person and someone else might be a quality time person. And he's not saying when he says love them the way you want to be loved, he's not saying, well, then if I want to be loved with quality time, then I'm going to love them with quality time. They might need something different. What he's saying is love them with the intensity and the intentionality with which you want to be loved. And as you do that, figure out the ways to show that to them and do that. And do that. We're all prone in marriages to love the way we want to be loved, not just in measure, but in like tactic. And the best thing in marriage is to figure out my spouse actually needs something different than what I myself might want. Friends, Jesus has changed you, He has given you a new capacity to forgive when your spouse hurts you, and a new capacity to hold on to your marriage with tenacity and to pursue the kind of glorious goodness in it. If I had time, I, I would just, I would go through an entire, I'd do an entire deal for you on a theology of marriage and why it's so important and why the world needs to see marriages that glorify Jesus. Your marriage exists to point people to the gospel and the kind of sacrificial love found in it. Understand what's at stake. And friends who are single, my, my younger friends who are single, understand that you are preparing for that. What you do with your eyes and the way that you date and the way that you ask someone on a date and what you do on that date and how you spend time together and your intentionality and all of that is all a preparation to glorify Jesus should he choose to bring you into a marriage. It's all a preparation so that you would kind of have the kind of marriage that glorifies him. Or should he call you into singleness that you would say, praise God for this great gift of singleness and the freedom to pursue the glory of God and the gospel and the proclamation of it. 1 Corinthians chapter seven. Praise him for that. He has withheld nothing from me. He is good. Then Jesus talked to us about our words, our oaths, and he said to us, you don't need to be the kind of person who has to have a special category of speech for people to know you're speaking the truth. Every word that comes out of your mouth should be the truth because you belong to me and I am the truth. And I have redeemed you through the truth. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, do I want to be able to rely on every word that a brother or sister of mine says to me? Or do I want to have to parse through whether what they're saying is true or not? 
And if that's how I want them to be, uh, the answer is I want to depend upon what they have said. Then can they depend on what I have said? Is every word that comes out of my mouth, whether I say I promise or I never say I promise, is every word that comes out of my mouth the truth? John chapter 8, Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We love the truth because we recognize that it's only by the truth and the revelation of that truth in the person of Jesus Christ that we have been reconciled to God and we have been raised out of death and into life. We love the truth because it's the truth that has redeemed us and changed us. And how dare we be a person that allow anything that is untrue to be on our lips. We want to be people who need nothing other than our plain, ordinary speech for people to know that what we are saying is absolutely the truth. That's who we want to be. And Jesus has changed us. He has given us that love for the truth. And he has made us the recipient of all of God's promises. Everything that God has said we know is true because it has come to pass in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. All the promises of God, in other words, anything he said he would do, he has done because the answer to that promise is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. In other words, it has been brought to pass. It has come about. All his plain statements about eternal life, being free from judgment, passing out of judgment and into life, all his statements about the kind of life he brings to you are absolutely true and found to be true because Jesus has come, lived, died, and risen. And so now we say the promises of God are yes and amen in him. Then Jesus went on from talking to us about our words, our oaths, to talking to us about retaliation and loving our enemies. I'm going to put these together because they're clearly related. And the question we then ask ourselves as we look back is, do I want others, when I hurt them, do I want them to hurt me in return or do I want them to forgive me? We know the answer to that, don't we? Do I want to live in perpetual fear that someone is pursuing my harm or do I want to live knowing that forgiveness can and is given to me? Am I hurting those who hurt me or am I forgiving them? Now here's the beauty of this, church. I can't always promise you that you can be reconciled to someone who hurts you. If they're not repentant, if they don't repent of sin and confess it and bring it and say, I need forgiveness, then you cannot be reconciled to them. But a Christian is always able to give the part of forgiveness that is, I will not seek to harm them. You may always do that, no matter what the other person does. You may actively remove your right to cause harm to someone else, no matter what they do or don't do. Do I seek to hurt those who hurt me? Or do I do unto others as I would want them to do to me? This is the law and the prophets. Jesus has changed you. You have received the title, Minister of Reconciliation. You are now a reconciler, not a retaliator. Can I say that again? You are a reconciler, not a retaliator. You are no longer a person who seeks to harm someone who harms you. You are now someone who knows that according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21, Christ has called you his ambassador, a minister of reconciliation. You have been reconciled to God through Christ, 
And now you make your appeal to others, be reconciled to God. And so you seek to be reconciled to them so that they might receive the reconciliatory work of God in Christ Jesus. That is who you are. No longer someone who needs to retaliate, but someone called to bring reconciliation. Then Jesus talked to us, I'm gonna put all these together, about generosity for the poor in particular, prayer, fasting, treasure in heaven, laying up treasure in heaven, not on earth, and being anxious. And all of those things, there was one theme holding them all together, and it was our intimacy with God. What he was saying was, don't be generous so that other people see you being generous with your money. Be generous secretly so that I know it's between you and me. Don't pray so that others go, wow, look how spiritual that girl is. Pray so that you're pursuing a relationship with me of deep love and closeness. Don't fast so that other people will go, whoa, they don't even pray. They fast. That person's intense. How spiritual are they? Don't do that for the approval of others and so that they would have their eyes on you and say how wonderful are they. Do it so that you are cultivating a relationship with God. And then he says, you will store up treasure in heaven and watch how he deals with your anxious thoughts and brings restoration to them. So the question that comes to us then is do I want others to be drawing from a deep well of relationship with God in the way that they relate to me? Or do I want them drawing from empty, shallow wells so that when they come to me, they're not drawing on the life of God in Christ Jesus, but they're drawing on empty, broken cisterns, Jeremiah says, sucking up bits of water out of the dirt rather than drawing crystal clear water from the well of life that comes to us in him. Do you want others to relate to you from the cistern or from the well of life? Are you drawing from the well of life in the way that you then relate to others? Jesus has changed us. I no longer do things for the approval of others to make them think I am spiritual. I do them because of a deep love for and trust in God. The last thing Jesus talked to us about other than being able to come to him in prayer. But just before that, he talked to him about, talked to us about judging others. And so the question comes to us, do I want others? Remember we said that judging others is being hypercritical or hypocritical of them. Do I want others to be hypercritical of me, of my actions? And do I want them to be hypocritical towards me, holding me to a standard that they themselves are not being held to? Do I want them to be hypercritical or hypocritical of me. So the question is, am I being hypercritical and hypocritical towards them? Do unto others. Friends, Jesus has changed you. He has made it so that you do not, well, you didn't meet his standard and he has shown you much mercy. Your sin and my sin was as deep and as wide as the ocean and he showed me a mercy even greater. How can I not Shower mercy. Rid myself of a hypercritical spirit and of a hypocritical spirit. How can I not? With the mercy that has swallowed me up, surrounded me on every side so that I am no longer 
no longer under the thumb of the evil one, but rescued and redeemed and made righteous. So the last thing that we see, just to go back to verse 12 now, it's that stop sign verse. He's just reminded. He said, go back and remind. So hopefully, is that an okay reminder of everything that we looked at the last 14 weeks? When you put it all together on one Sunday, it's a little bit overwhelming, right? It's like, whew, that's a lot. We broke that down like verse, you know, like Sunday by Sunday, and now we just had to deal with it all on one week. That's a lot. He says one other thing here that we need to pay attention to. He did not say, do unto others as they do unto you. Let's put verse 12 back up. What did he say? He said, whatever you what? Wish that others would do to you. Do also to them. In other words, you have to do it whether or not they do it. You have to do it whether or not they do it. Don't do unto others as they do unto you. Do what you wish they would do, even when they don't. Now, this is hugely important because in marriages and in friendships, in relationships within the body of Christ, I talk about this with married couples all the time. We talk about perpetuating a cycle of self-protection or perpetuating a cycle of sacrificial love. And those are the only two cycles that are available to you. There's not a third option. Ephesians chapter 5 is really helpful to us here. When it says, wives love, sorry, husbands love your wives, and wives respect your husbands. That's uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 33. And what Paul is getting at there is there's a distinct need that husbands have and a distinct need that wives have. We're different from one another. We both need love, but for men, often love is expressed as respect, admiration. For wives, often, Love is shown as this sense of tenderness and intimacy, love. And so he says, husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Now here's what happens in marriages and in friendships within the body of Christ. Here's what happens. I say, I'll love her when she respects me. And she says, I'll respect him when he what? Loves me. What is that? That's self-protection. I'm not going to make myself vulnerable. I'm not going to give because that makes me vulnerable. And then they don't give back and I get crushed. And all that leads to is a cycle of self-protection and no one loves and no one respects. And no one loves and no one respects. Somebody has to break that cycle by choosing to do what is not being done for them. Somebody must break the cycle by doing what is not being done for them. So that if my wife says, I will choose to respect my husband because God commands it of me even when he has not shown a love towards me in the way that I need it. Do you know what happens? It creates the possibility of a broken cycle of self-protection, and it opens up the possibility of a cycle of sacrificial love. Because the right response that I should have to my wife showing me respect when I know I did not deserve it is to do what? Is to humble myself and to say, let me give you the love that you need. And now a different kind of cycle has started. The cycle where I say, I will love you regardless of what I receive back. And you respect me regardless of what you receive back. It's very vulnerable, but this is what Jesus has done. He's made it possible for us to do this because Jesus didn't retaliate against us, did he? He didn't hold on to a cycle of self-protection of himself. He gave freely his life. That's as true in a friendship as it is in a marriage when we choose to give even when we're not being given to. So hear me, 
church, family, you must do this and I must do this whether or not it is done for us because it is the command and call of God and it is the only way to see the kingdom come forth. Do unto others as you wish they would do for you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask you now, having heard your word and trusting that it is true, every letter of it, cause it now to sink deep into our minds and hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might be a people who can obey this call, this command, this summary of the law and the prophets to do unto others as we would want them to do to us. Give us the strength to go forward in this place in confession, in repentance, uh, in the strength to do something different or new in a place where we need to. And now we ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would fill our, not just our mouths, but our hearts with praise for you. We've heard your word, and our response to you is to say you are great, to be full of praise. So we ask you to receive that praise now. It's in your name that we pray, our King and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.